Creator God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be truly acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. I'll admit I had a really hard time with this text. And Jesus is saying that basically at some point, things will go to hell in a handbasket. That his people will be persecuted, betrayed, even executed. And yet not a hair on their heads will perish. What are we supposed to do with that? I'll be honest, it sounds a bit like an empty promise. There's a whole lot of perishing that happens to faithful people in the world. That's already happened to faithful people in the world. But there it is in the Gospel of Luke. So what gives? Jesus is confusing at times, elusive, even vague, but not a liar or someone who doles out empty platitudes or peddles false hope. So if this isn't false hope, then maybe I've been misunderstanding his audience or his context. So let's, we zoom out and we try to get that God's eye view. This passage begins with Jesus' disciples admiring the temple, remarking on its physical splendor. The temple, as we've heard before, was the center of Jewish religious life. This was where God lived. This particular temple was built by Herod, who was a paranoid, oppressive, traitorous puppet king who used his dirty money to build a beautiful temple, not as a way to truly glorify God, but as a monument to himself, his wealth, his might, and his influence. It would be like using public funds to pay for a military parade to show off tanks and war machines while children in that school district starve and while our trans sisters, brothers, and siblings are excluded from military service. So back to the story, what I'm hearing is Jesus' reminder that the temple isn't everything, that any human infrastructure will inevitably always fail, and that any human institution built on greed will crumble, often spectacularly, and not without collateral damage. What matters is that when it falls, what is our response Do we wring our hands, wail, and beat our breasts, or do we set about replacing it with institutions that advance the kinship of God and the fellowship of all humans with creation? If our church were to burn down, it would be a tragedy, and yet our community would still exist. The love we have for one another would still be strong. If the building burned down, it wouldn't erase the work we did in advancing the criminal justice reform bill or the hundreds of thousands of dollars we've tithed in missions givings, nor would it nullify all of the wedding, right 13, confirmation, and baptism vows we've made in this space as a community. What makes us a church? Is it this beautiful building or is it the folks on either side of you, in front of you, behind you? Is it the presence of God that courses amidst us, her Holy Spirit knitting us together? 
The temple was where Jesus' community believed God lived. But Jesus reminded them that wherever two or three are gathered in God's name, there God is. Whenever we gather to worship and serve, God is present. War will happen. Institutions will crumble. Greed and fear will lead to persecutions and death, but God's people live on. This text's immediate context is that of the Jewish people facing the destruction of their temple, war and persecutions. All these things happened, and yet the Jewish people have not perished. Jewish life today is rich and thriving. Judaism evolved from temple Judaism to rabbinic Judaism, centered around synagogues, pockets of community that support each other, and Jewish life around the globe. I invite you all to come to our interfaith Thanksgiving service on the 24th at Temple Beth Zion, where our Brookline interfaith clergy group puts on a service together, and you can see some of that richness for yourselves. Now to us, Jesus' Gentile followers or non-Jewish followers. I think Jesus is reminding us of the cost of discipleship in a world that prioritizes power and money and that is rife with subjugation. As long as that is the main value of society writ large or of those in power, there will always be wars, conflicts, Our foundations will shake, and charismatic leaders will try to get us on board with their whole shebang. Knowing, know that this is the way of the world, but stay on my way, Jesus says. If you keep your heart and mind and soul turned toward God, and if you love your neighbor, you won't need a defense in court. Because what paranoid, power-hungry ruler wouldn't be confounded by a testimony about how you love your enemy and pray for your persecutors? The road is long. The life of this movement spans not decades, but generations, millennia. And the things we stand for, the values we live into, will not perish just because our temples fall apart. The Hebrew Bible passage assigned to this day in the lectionary is from the prophet Isaiah, and it's pretty different from what we heard from Jesus in the gospel. Through Isaiah, God says, I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not even be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered cursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord. Now, Ignatian spirituality has, among many others, two principles called consolation and desolation. 
And I'm about to quote heavily from an article by Vanita Hampton Wright from IgnatianSpirituality.com. So know that the following are her words and not mine. A person dwells in a state of desolation when they are moving away from God's active presence in the world. We know we are moving in this way when we sense the growth of resentment, ingratitude, selfishness, doubt, fear, and so on. If my outlook becomes increasingly gloomy or self-obsessed, I am in a state of desolation. I am resisting God, or if not actively resisting, I am being led away from God by other influences. Desolation holds many emotions and experiences. If I'm in desolation, I might try to alleviate the discomfort by drinking too much or seeking distraction through more work or social events. The food and drink and activity might feel quite good, but they are not leading me to greater joy, peace, and love. In fact, false consolations can help me avoid the true consolation of God's presence. These are two lists by Margaret Silf. Desolation turns us inward on ourselves, drives us down the spiral ever deeper into our own negative feelings, cuts us off from community, makes us want to give up on the things that used to be important to us, takes over our whole consciousness and crowds out our distant vision, covers up all of the landmarks, all of those signs of our journey with God so far, and drains us of energy. But consolation, consolation directs our focus outside and beyond ourselves. Consolation lifts our hearts so that we can see the joys and sorrows of other people. It bonds us more closely to our human community generates new inspiration and ideas, restores balance, and refreshes our inner vision, shows us where God is active in our lives and releases new energy in us. A person dwells in a state of consolation when they are moving towards God's active presence in the world. We know we are moving in this way when we sense the growth of love or faith, or mercy, or hope, any of the qualities we know as gifts of the Holy Spirit. If I am becoming more kind with people and I experience this movement as life-giving and Christ-like, I am in a state of consolation. Consolation can hold many emotions and experiences. Consolation doesn't mean that I feel constantly happy or at peace. In fact, sometimes... When I'm doing precisely what God is leading me to do, I might feel negative pressure from others. Or I might find the experience a challenge because I'm growing and learning. Yet if I sense in my spirit that I'm going the right way, the spiritual reality consoles me, whether the day is bumpy or smooth. My words again. I think this is what we see in Isaiah and Luke. I think in Isaiah we hear a perspective of consolation, of being in line with the ways of God and tightly bonded to our human community, having empathy with all creation. Isaiah says the wolf and the lamb will feed together as companions. The people closely tuned to God and listening intently for what God has to say to them. 
That is the vision of what is to come through consolation. In Luke, Jesus warns his followers how easy it is to slip into desolation, to lose sight of God's active presence in the world, to turn to false consolations, and to lose that God's eye view, getting mired in the short term and instant gratification. Now, I'll admit it's hard to find consolation when we're facing pain, disaster, persecution, even death. And yet, turning toward community, grounding ourselves in this movement of justice, compassion, and peace, this thing that is so much bigger than any one of us, rooting ourselves in our values and finding and building community around those values, that is what consoles our souls and gives us the strength to endure the hard even terrifying times. Vanita Wright says that as we learn to recognize when we are in desolation and consolation, we can respond accordingly. We can change course through prayer, community, discernment, spiritual direction when we're in desolation. And when we're in consolation, we can stay the course. Consolation strengthens the community, and strong communities make a difference in the world. You heard just a few moments ago the promises that we all made to Erin, Nate, and baby Parker that no matter what happens on their journey of parenting and growing up, they will not be alone. Following Jesus, tuning our hearts towards God means that even in our loneliest moments, we are never alone. Jesus calls us to love God and love our neighbor, and doing just that builds community that withstands the assaults of darker forces in the world. Many of our temples will fall, literally and figuratively. What matters is what's left when that happens. Do we scatter into the wind, each one for themselves, or do we come together and strengthen our ties, holding each other up as beloved beloved children of God and build a new heaven and earth. Amen.